This is from the NIV. Early in the morning, Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. In order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her, announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 men remained. But the Lord said to Gideon, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. You could be seated. This morning we are talking about fear of failure. And as we are talking about the fear of failure, it is probably one of the most prevalent fears that people uh, face, encounter today. I must confess to you that uh, there are probably more things I should be afraid of. But one of the things that I'm greatly afraid of is heights. I have this crazy fear of high places, and it is so pronounced that Wendy can tell you if we are watching television and there is a show and somebody's doing some crazy stunt or they are in a position of a, um, of a, uh, a dangerous spot and it's high, my palms sweat. Just while watching, my body has this visceral reaction and I begin to sweat. I've been in two or three situations when I think of my fear of heights that come immediately to mind. All three of them, I'm in front of people who I'm leading. And uh, there's something about being in front of people that to look up to you that makes you want to do what you ought to do. And so I remember probably the earliest of these is uh, my son and I are at Carowinds. We went to Carowinds. It was a, a fantastic time, and Trent and I are having a blast. And Trent is tall for his age, which means that at an early age, he was able to ride rides that he shouldn't have been able to ride at his age. Maybe they're not uh, stage-wise. Uh, he's not stage-wise ready, but he's height-wise ready. And so he was five uh, years old or six, and we got in line for this ride. They've since renamed uh, but for those of you who've been to Carowinds, you get on the ride, you're lying on your back uh, on this ride, and then uh, it takes off. And when it takes off, it has belts here, of course, it flips you. Any of you done this? Yeah? It flips you, and you're flying through the air. Uh, and so when it flipped us, and we were flying through the air, and everything in my life depended on man-made belts going across my chest... 
all of a sudden, visions came through my head, and they weren't good ones. And I'm thinking, my six-year-old is to my right, and he's flying through the air too. This isn't a pretty scene. He's flying through the air too. I'm freaking out. I'm hoping he doesn't slip through. And I remember just yelling, uh, I-, I love my son. Wow, that's the only reason I would ever do that. Uh, the second occurrence is we're at Ridgecrest, we're on the high ropes course, and I've got the staff there. And so it was my idea to do this. Why was it my idea to do this? I don't know. I just thought it might be good to build us as a staff. And so we're on the high ropes course, we're among the trees uh, where only animals belong, and we have climbed up this rope thing, and we're, we're harnessed off again by a man-made thing that I'm supposed to trust that when I go walking across this roped ladder with nothing to hold me up from the side, it won't give way. This won't give way. Well, it, it's fine until I see Josh who thinks he's a squirrel. And Josh just gets up there, and he's harnessed off, and he literally runs. He literally runs across it, and I'm thinking, show off. And uh, Dylan Saladin is with us, and Dylan thinks he's a flying squirrel. He doesn't even need to be tethered, he thinks, and he just runs through it. And I get up there, and I become, for the first time in my life, a tree hugger. Because there's this tree, and I love this tree all of a sudden. Love the tree. So much so that I'm supposed to work my way around it, and I'm doing like this all the way around the tree. Like, please save me, tree. Finally made it through that at the end. I have to go swinging off, you know, and then get, oh, it was, it was awful. It was absolutely horrid. Well, I think somehow I can overcome this. I'm at the Columbia Zoo, which is, by the way, a fantastic day trip. And Trent uh, is there. And, Trent, and they have one of those uh, ropes courses that's all metal and, and safe looking. And I think I can handle this one, right? <laughs> and so, so Trent, uh, Trent gets on it and he's looking at him, Dad, come on. And that's just so emasculating. All right, so... Your son is up there, and you're down here, and he's saying, Dad, come on. Come on, Dad. And everybody's watching you, and you feel like a wuss, you know? It's all like, what the heck? And so I pay the money. I get on the thing, and when I get to level two, this has level uh, three or four levels, I'm freaking out. Palms are sweating all over again. Why? I have this fear of heights, and I have a fear of failure. And it necessarily isn't a fear of me failing, but somewhere, uh, some human being made what's strapping me on. And other human beings are telling me how to strap it onto myself. And the one at the zoo runs through a track. And I go through all of those things in my mind. And I've discovered the older I get, the more I go through them in my mind. I don't know if anybody else is that way. But the older I get, the more I see how things could fail. And so fear of failure is real. And we may laugh about it, but the reality is that listening this morning or listening to podcasts is this series is being crazy podcasted. I'm so thrilled about that. But listening to podcasts are folks who are getting ready to take final exams. And you are scared out of your mind. You have studied. You've, you've been a good student. But all of a sudden, the reality of a test is scary to you. And so you have this fear of failure, fear of failing the test, fear of failing your parents, fear of failing the people who give you the scholarship. It's a very real fear of failure. 
Uh, I realize that there's some of you in here and your marriage is in such a spot that there is this fear that kind of hovers like a, a, a low-lying fog on the mountain and, and you drive through it constantly. What if uh, our marriage goes awry? What if something happens and you have this fear of failure in your marriage and you live in light of that? There are folks in here who are running for office right now, and it's political time, and it's election time, and I'm glad that we have uh, people who are running for office who know and love the Lord, but wow, when you put your signs out everywhere, it's just so much more fun to take them up once you're in office than it is when you're not. Uh, There's a fear of failure that haunts you as you think through, am I doing the right thing? Fear of failure is real. Gideon uh, had a fear of failure. God reached out to him and called him when he was a zero. Uh, Gideon was the smallest man in the smallest tribe, and God said, hey, I want you to be a judge. And when we hear the word judge, we immediately think of a court of law, and that's not what the book of Judges is about. The book of Judges is about a judge who was a governor in a sense. He was a political leader. And in the book of Judges, it's one of the saddest books in the Old Testament. Uh, Those of you who are in my OT class uh, know this, that in the book of Judges, there is a cycle that is repeated about six or seven times. And in that cycle in the book of Judges, the people sin. God allows an enemy to come in. There are always an ITE on the end of that enemy. The Midianites, the Amalekites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, uh, someone who said the termites, whoever. God just allows them to come in. They wreak havoc usually by coming in at harvest time, taking all the crops, leaving the people hungry, and then the people repent. God raises a judge, a political and religious uh, leader who leads them out of their predicament. That's the story of the book of Judges, and it occurs about seven times. And so Israel is in that predicament. God raises up Gideon. And Gideon is a no-name. Nobody knows who Gideon is. He's kind of stuck off in the smallest tribe, the smallest guy in the smallest tribe, and there he is, and God raises him up to be this ruler. But there's a major problem. They're called the Midianites. And the Midianites are a vast enemy of Israel. And Gideon looks and he can see them. They outnumber. Their camels are described as outnumbering the grains of sand. Uh, They're spread through the valley like locust bugs, you know, when they've flown in. That's how they are. And Gideon sees it. Well, they have a meeting at the spring of Herod, H-A-R-O-D. And that word in uh, the original language means trembling. They meet at the spring of trembling. And, And I dare say that some of you walked in here this morning having drunk uh, this morning from the spring of trembling. You are living in fear today. They meet at the spring of trembling, and once they have that meeting at the spring of trembling, they spread out. There's 32,000 of them. They spread out to Mount Gilead. And Mount Gilead, in the original language, means, guess what? Trembling. So they meet at the spring of trembling, and they hang out on the Mount of Trembling. Uh, They're afraid. They are afraid. 
And as they do, Gideon is ready to take his 32,000 men. He's got some kind of military action plan. He's ready to take his 32,000 men and take care of the Midianites when God shows up. And when God does, uh, we learn some things about God here. Three ways in which God works, and you need to jot these down this morning uh, because they're absolutely critical if you fear failure. Number one, God designs no-win situations. God designs no-win situations. If you can't get that, you will struggle in your understanding of God. God looks at Gideon and he says, listen, Gideon, you've got 32,000 men. That's way too many. It's way too many to take on these Midianites. What I want you to do at the spring of Tremblin, uh, on the Mount of Tremblin, look at all those men and say this. Uh, listen, guys, uh, God just showed up, and he is commander-in-chief of this little uh, venture we're doing here. And the commander-in-chief has spoken to me, Gideon the general, and he has said, if any of you are afraid, just go home. All right, so what does Gideon do? Gideon says, okay, uh, uh, he stands up, he makes the announcement, and you know what every leader is hoping at that point. Well, these are a bunch of brave men out here. That's what every leader is hoping. And what happens? 22,000 of them look at each other and go, I'm out of here. 22,000, two-thirds, more than two-thirds of them say, see you later, Gideon. Uh, that's all it takes. Hey, I, I'm, you know, I'll man up and admit I'm a wuss. I'm gone. 22,000 of them leave. So Gideon has 10,000 left now. 10,000, surely uh, he'll take the 10,000 now and he'll go down to, uh, to, to in the valley in that fertile place that the Midianites have settled into. They're eating all uh, of the, uh, the, the grain and they're eating all the good stuff and he'll take care of him. What does God say? Well, well Gideon, uh, there's still too many. Uh, I mean, if, if, if you go down with 32,000 and now if you go down with uh, 10,000, uh, you'll think it was your doing. You'll think you pulled this off. There's too many. So what I want you to do is take them over to the spring of trembling and uh, tell them to drink water. Well, okay, God. Drink water? Yeah. Tell them to drink water. So Gideon marches them over to the spring of trembling. He gives them directions to drink water. That's it. Uh, but God gives Gideon directions kind of in the background as according to the way they drink, this is how you're supposed to respond. So if they lap water like a dog, set them to one side, and if they cup water in their hands and lap it out of their hands, set them to the other. They have no clue this is a test. So they do. And Gideon starts to set them aside. <laughs> oh, wow. Things have turned way south. Why? Well, there are only 300 of them who take water and cup it up to their mouths and drink. 9,700 of them act like dogs. They just get down there, lap up the water like a dog. 
Now, we're never given any explanation. Some scholars say, well, if you drink water like this, you can have your eye on the enemy. Nobody knows, but it was God's test of who he was going to keep. And so Gideon, who started out with 32,000, down to, uh, to 10,000, is now down to 300. 300 guys. And the army is strong. So we said, well, Jerry, how about that look? Here's what I want us to do. If you would stand, everybody, all, everybody right now in the room, just stand up. So everybody, everybody standing. All right, so here's, here's, what, we're going to, uh, here's what we're going to do. Uh, to give you some idea, some idea in a moment, I'm going to ask you to be seated. Uh, but when I do, I, I want uh, right here Nathan to remain standing. And Daniel, if you'll remain standing over here. And uh, Clay Veazey, if you'll remain standing over here. So everybody look around. Look around. Just look around. Uh, good group of people. Now be seated except for the people I asked. All right. Uh, there are two Daniels. We'll take one, either one. Uh, there you go. All right, so here's what we got left. All right, I mean, nothing against you guys, but um, this is it. This is percentage-wise from 32,000 to 300. You guys could be seated. So what did they do? Well, they gathered provisions. The 9,700 went back to their tents. They gathered provisions, and they head into a no-win situation. What in the world do we learn from this? No, uh, let, me, let me say this. You say, Jerry, I don't like no-win situations. Neither do I. No one does. And especially if you're a type A person like me, you hate them. I chart every course I can chart. I look at every detail. You can ask my wife. I do it. I have a son who's 11. He and I had a father-son evening last night, went to watch the tourists play on the way there. On the way back, my son is the same way. Poor kid. He's gotten that, every bit of it. Thankfully, he got Wendy's happy jeans, and he got my planning jeans, and maybe he'll be a happy planner. But, uh, but, but we just talked, and he's already anticipating his car when he turns 16. He's anticipating money that he is saving and putting in the bank. How much should he save? How much should he keep back for that car? What should he do here? How should he plan this out? I'm like, oh, poor kid. I know what it is to be in your world. I was in his world. Uh, I still am there. I don't like no-win situations, but here is the reality. This is the reality. If you have come to Christ, you came to Christ out of a no-win situation. Amen? If you came to Christ, you came to Christ out of a no-win situation. Your sin clearly separated you from God. There was no way that you could win that. Jesus says the only way you come to him is if the Spirit draws you. You came to Christ out of a no-win situation. We have done this throughout all of this series. But if God can handle your worst no-win situation, don't you think he can handle all the ones underneath? All right? If God can handle your worst no-win situation, don't you think every no-win situation underneath is not too hard for him?
I love, I don't know who said it, someone who said we're attempting something so great that it is doomed to fail if God is not in it. When is the last time you've done that? When is the last time you've walked away from the predictability of your life and you have ventured out into something that only God can handle, only God can pull off? You've stepped out into the arena of faith and you've said, God, I do not know the outcome of this. I don't know the outcome. One of the things that I've tried to build into our staff for 13 years here is that it's okay to fail. If we don't make mistakes, we're not trying many new things here. We will try things and we will fail. If there isn't that culture in any organization, that organization will shrivel. That organization will lack in creativity. Now, it's not very smart to fail the same way again and again and again. At some point, you got to figure that out. But we will make mistakes. And, and here, God has specifically designed a no-win situation. 1 Corinthians is a great passage that helps us understand God's heart here. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 30. Every one of us in the pastorate, every one of us in ministry, and you in your particular context... Uh, would do well to get this. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. <laughs> So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. We have no room to brag. None. Please hear me. If you've walked in here this morning thinking, oh, I've kind of figured this out. I've, kind of, I've got a handle on this. I, I've, got, I've got an edge on this. You're in the worst possible position anyone could be in in this room this morning. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in who? The Lord. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We have no bragging room. I have none. None of us has any room to brag. Why? Ultimately, everything in your life but Jesus will fail you. Ultimately, it will. Your health will fail you one day, you'll die. Your money will fail you one day, you won't be able to buy health. One day, you will come to the end of your money and your money won't be able to fix the health problems you have. Your family will fail you one day, they can't keep you from dying. I've been with more dying people that, than I can even think through. I've yet to see a grieving husband or wife son or daughter or mother or father have the power to do one thing to change the outcome you can all of that fails Christ never does he never absolutely ever fails God designs no win situations number two God remembers 
you are dust. God remembers you are dust. So what? The people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent. I love this. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Just in case we've forgotten that the problem is still the problem, uh, the writer says the Midianites are still there. Look at verse 9. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. I love verse 10. I absolutely love verse 10. What does it say? But if you are afraid. (laughs) Gideon? (laughs) This is the guy who had to put fleece after fleece out just to figure out if he was going to do what God said for him to do. You think Gideon's afraid? Yes. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, And you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands shall be strengthened to go down against this camp. Psalm 103 is a psalm that that ought to, unless you're eaten up with pride, give you great comfort. Uh, Verse 13 of Psalm 103, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. Uh, Some translations read that, he knows how we are formed, he remembers that we are dust. God remembers us as we are. Here is the problem. We remember ourselves Way too high. We forget we're dust. God doesn't. How does that factor into Gideon? God says that night, listen, you and your 300 boys, I'm going to give all the Midianites into your hands. But if you're afraid, go down with Pura, who's probably his armor bearer. Go down with Pura into the camp. And when you go down, you're going to hear something. And when you hear something... Uh, you will be reassured. Gideon needed reassurance. Do you ever need that? Do you ever deal with anything in your life and you say, God, if you could just show me something, show me something. Janet Spake is sitting here this morning, and I've watched Janet's faith through many, many years. Many years. Number one bout with cancer. Now she's going through it again, getting ready to start chemotherapy all over again. Here she sits this morning with great great faith. Janet has said for years, here's what I'd like, God. If you could just send one of those planes flying over with a message behind it, and it say clearly what I'm supposed to do, I'd be up for it. How many of us think that way? God just, I just need something. And do you know what God does? God answers that sometimes in the most unexpected ways, doesn't he? He does. For me this week, as I've been struggling through some things, for me this week, it was a sermon that I began to listen to on Friday. And I began to listen to that sermon on Friday, and I'm working outside. I'm listening to that sermon. I'm battling, like one of those days when I battled all day, and I'm listening to that sermon, and I'm working outside, and all of a sudden, it's hot. I'm mowing grass, push mower. I'm mowing grass, and I get cold chills. Ever had that experience? And like the Holy Spirit is so working and he's so ministering to me right when I need him, right when I need him most through a guy I'll probably never meet in my life, a sermon I, oh, wow. 
God just does that in the, in the most unexpected ways, doesn't he? He works in those powerful and wonderful ways. So he sends uh, Gideon down. Now keep in mind, we've got thousands of men scattered out like locusts on the ground. Their, their camels are like the sands of the seashore. They're scattered everywhere, and Gideon gets there. And when he does, he so happens to come upon the exact guy who had that dream. What is the dream? It's hilarious. This guy's talking, and he says, well, you know, the next day is a big day. Battle's going down. I had a dream last night. Other guy, what did you dream? Well, I dreamed that this barley loaf came rolling down the hill into a tent and knocked it over. Well, okay. Since when do hush puppies matter, you know? Like cornbread. This is a cornbread muffin or something. Just rolling down the hill. It knocked a tent over. Well, okay, you know, did you have pizza when you went to bed? That's weird. The other guy says, you know what it is? No. It's that guy Gideon. Why, he's, he's the son of, and he gives Gideon's whole lineage? How, how does that guy know? Have you ever thought about that in this story? Uh, that guy, I mean, there's no CNN or Fox saying, you know, Gideon's the new judge on the scene. He's this guy's kid. He's done this. It's big news flash. Here's Gideon. Nothing like that has happened. And all of a sudden, Gideon comes among thousands of men. He happens to land in the very right spot to hear the exact word that he needs to hear. And when he hears the word he needs to hear, there Gideon, there Gideon stands. He's listening. Yeah, it's that Gideon guy. Uh, he's, he's, he's God's servant. He's, they're going to destroy us. Do you know what I find interesting about that? You could just have easily interpreted that the other way. What? Well, the cornbread, let's say, barley loaf, whatever that is, rolling down into camp could have been rolling down into Gideon's camp, 300 guys. Knock their tent over. And Boom. Israel's wiped out. How did Gideon, how did that God know that the accurate interpretation of the dream, this is not a follower of God, don't miss that part. What does it say about God's ability to work outside of normal circumstances? <laughs> amazing. He's amazing. He is ability to work in that way. God remembers your dust, and he's going to give you those encouraging things that you need to hear right at the time you need to hear them. He's going to do it, and that's what he did. And so Gideon hears it, and all of a sudden, Gideon has hope. He has hope. Hope. You see, hope must be injected into any situation where fear is dominating if you don't have hope you will quit and God knows how long you can go without it he knows when you need it I've watched you I've said this now for the past three or four months I've watched incredible crazy things here and I think of what Janet's going through and I think of what Rachel is going through sitting here and I think of Freddie Martin, who was in our class this morning, cracking jokes about his inability to see. But it wasn't funny uh, on Friday when I'm driving, and I had to go around Mackey's Creek. And I'm driving around Mackey's Creek, and I look up and see Freddie driving down Mackey's Creek on his tractor. 
And I'm thinking, what is wrong with this guy? Like, does everybody else know the guy can't see? Uh, I know this, and so I am in defensive driving mode, which is most people are around me, but I now am in defensive driving mode because I know a blind man is driving the tractor on Mackey's Creek. And there he comes, and he waves at me. Like, Freddie, do you know who I am, or are you just trying to make me feel better? I don't know because we haven't got to talk about this yet. But I love that indomitable spirit that he has, that, that, that God has given him. You see, God will give you that message, that word. When you need it, as you need it, God will work in your situation. Here is my question for you, and I want you to listen. Obviously, you want to hear. You wouldn't be here this morning. But are you willing to wake up early enough on a Wednesday morning to hear it? Are you willing to slow down? Are you willing to set aside your agenda and say, God, I'm so stinking scared. I'm afraid I'm going to blow this. So here I am. What, what do you need to say to me? God, help me. As the Father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. He, he remembers how we're formed. He knows we're dust. I'm going to say something to us this morning. This counters this whole modern idea of self-esteem in our culture. Oh, I can't think that way of myself if I, if I think I'm dust. And certainly I'm not going to be able to overcome. I'm not going to be able to do these things. I mean, I watched Dr. Phil this week, and he made it clear. Uh, can't think that way, you know. Well, Paul says that God uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise and the weak, the strong and the poor, the rich. and Like there's this paradox that evidently goes on in life where God doesn't choose the best and the brightest. But the weakest. Perhaps this just runs crazy counter to how we prefer to think about ourselves. What happens? We learn, thirdly, that God reigns through victories and defeats. God reigns through victories and defeats. What does uh, Gideon do? <clears throat> when Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he worshiped God. That word worshiped right there, <clears throat> which means to prostrate oneself, occurs three times in the book of Judges. The other two times, they're worshiping Baal. This is the only time it occurs when somebody's worshiping God. And Gideon just falls on his face and begins to worship God. Right there, he gets up, he heads down the hill, uh, or up the hill, he goes to get his guys, and notice what he says to them. As soon as he heard the dream, verse 15, he worshiped, and he returned to the camp of Israel and says, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. Notice that. God's got this. Notice Gideon's language all of a sudden. The Lord's done this. God has given the host of Midian into your hand. Get up. 
And he divided the 300 men into three companies, and I don't understand this, but trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside. So we got mason jars, sparklers, and kazoos. All right? So we're going after these guys without a weapon. Not a weapon to be found. And he said to them, look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. What is he saying? All of a sudden, Gideon who's, who's passive, Gideon who's scared, Gideon who's freaking out because of everything. It's like, hey, do what I do. All right, it's what we're going to do. It's the plan. And he's talking like Gideon the general now. And he says, this is what we're going to do. This confidence that wells up within him for God. And so what do they do? They go into battle. Jars, sparklers, kazoos. All right? We got jars, torches, trumpets. None of that will hurt anybody. I mean, maybe you could hit them with a jar. You know, that could hurt. Burn them with a torch. They divide into three companies, and guess what time it is? It's midnight. We learned that later. It's midnight. Do you know when most people struggle with fear? Nighttime. In the middle of the night, isn't it? It wakes you up. According to this, that's when God's ready to go to battle. In the middle of the night, at midnight, when you're most scared, it's when God is most prepared. When you wake up with the fear and it washes over you like waves on the shore, There is a God who never sleeps nor slumbers, who is ready for that moment. In the middle of the night, he marshals his troops, and they go up, and guess what they do? Well, they they shout this funny phrase, a sword for the Lord. And you know what's funny? There's no swords. All right? There's not a sword. They don't have a sword. Uh, There's not a sword among the 300 of them. A sword for the Lord and for Gideon is what they shout. Uh, They divide into three groups. They do that, break their jars, and wave their torches. And what happens? A sword for the Lord. People hear it, and you have these very descriptive response. In verse 21, they cried out, uh, and, and all the army ran. They cried out. And fled. (laughs) They ran, they screamed, and they fled. And they destroyed one another, and then they headed off into the hill country. And who is the hero of the day? Well, if you're not careful, it's Gideon. But we have learned through this sermon who is the real hero here. Let's say it loud. Let's say it louder. God. He always is. I want you to listen to me, Bible fellowship leaders, group leaders, so many of you now, new groups. God has to be the hero of your group. God has to be the hero of your study. God has to be the hero of your family. God has to be the hero of this church. But there was this foreboding Quote 
that Gideon said to these people. You see, everybody who studies the story of Gideon stops here, but there's a chapter 8. And there was this foreboding for the Lord and for who? Gideon. It's never been that way. God needs no sidekick. He he needs nobody to push his plan forward. He uses who he chooses. He does what he wills. And and so what happened? Well, Gideon and his guys start after all those people, and they chase them, and they go through a little town called Succoth. And when they go through that town, they need some bread. And so Gideon asked the people for something to eat. And guess what? They said, well, you've already got those kings of Midian. You don't need our bread. And Gideon turns, and he does something that most people don't realize occurs. This is chapter 8 stuff. Most people don't realize occurs in Gideon's life. He turns, and he says, all right, that's how you're going to be. When I come back through, now this is kind of funny to read. I'm just saying, having grown up in the country where this is how I got whipped on occasion, this is kind of funny. But he says, when I come back through, I'm going to get some briars, and I'm just going to beat you. (laughs) What? Yeah. That's what Gideon says. Go read it. It's in the Bible. You should read your Bibles. Fascinating stuff. And so he says, I'm going to get some briars, and I'm just going to beat you. And so sure enough, Gideon goes through. He comes back. And when he comes back through, he gets some briars. He, he does a little reconnaissance work, pulls a guy out, asks him questions, gets a list of 77 elders in the town. He takes those 77 elders in the town, and he gets briars, and he publicly whips them. Why? Personal revenge. Has nothing to do with God, God's plan, nothing. Personal revenge. Gideon, who was a zero, who had become a hero, is now quickly sliding towards zero status again. Not only that, pulls all the men. Are you ready for this? These are Israelites out of that city and kills them. Gideon, who was a nobody in the middle of a tribe, has all of a sudden become a tyrant. Gideon, who was bullied by the Midianites, has become the bully of his own people. And then he collects jewelry and he makes an ephod to wear over his chest. Gideon's ephod. The light would reflect off of that thing. Gideon would be seen. Do you know what I fear? That Gideon's fear of failure, are you ready? Didn't go far enough. Why? I said, Jerry, what do you mean? I, I thought I'm supposed to be less afraid. Probably the greatest fear you should have is the fear of self reliance. God, I've got this. God, this is mine. I'm on this. I'll call you if I need you. Let me handle this one. Somehow Gideon, the timid, became Gideon, the tyrant. 